You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends and welcome back through the wardrobe into the wonderful world of Narnia. It's been a while since I've recorded an episode on C.S. Lewis's amazing books, so definitely really keen to plumb into some of its riches once again. And of course, great to have your company to do so. So today we'll be reflecting on a very significant part of our faith, one that is not often talked about, or when it is, it's not done very well. As you've gathered from the title, I refer here to our judgment before God. The moment at the end of our lives when we come face to face with God and the entirety of our lives are laid bare. What images come to mind when you think of this moment? Perhaps you have Michelangelo's epic fresco in St. Peter's flash before your eyes where the mighty Christ stands with arm outstretched dividing the damned and the saved. Perhaps you have the separation of the sheep from the goats in Matthew's Gospel and pray to God that you're not one of those goats who get sent to eternal damnation. And what do you feel when you think of these images? Perhaps there's a mixture of fear and hope, anxiety and longing, and even confusion about how all this judgment business actually works with a loving God. How can God be both justice and mercy? And how could he possibly send someone to hell? This episode doesn't promise to address all these questions because they're all very good questions and deserve adequate time to unpack. But what I do hope to do is to get us thinking and re-evaluating what the Catholic notion of judgment is. And I do believe a scene from Narnia can give us a few rather helpful pointers. It will be taken from Book 7 called The Last Battle, the final of the Narnia books. So, this scene takes place in the very last chapters, pretty much at the end of time. The old world of Narnia has come to an end, and the new Narnia is about to be born. Aslan, the great Christ-like lion, has created a single magical door, which sort of acts like a portal between the old world and the new. In this scene, we see that every single creature that has ever lived in Narnia, alive and dead, must now approach this door. They come one by one in a line to the door, and more importantly, to Aslan, the judge who stands beside it. Let's now read the actual passage. The creatures came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter as they drew nearer and nearer. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or other of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred, except that on the faces of those talking beasts, the fear and hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You could see that they suddenly ceased to be talking beasts. They were just ordinary animals. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right and disappeared into his huge black shadow, 
which streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again, and I don't know what became of them. But the other creatures looked in the face of Aslan and loved him, though some of them were very frightened at the same time. And all these came in at the door, in on Aslan's right. There were some queer specimens among them. Eustace even recognised one of those very dwarves who had helped to shoot the horses. But he had no time to wonder about that sort of thing, and anyway it was none of his business, for a great joy put everything else out of his head. Among the happy creatures now came crowding round Tyrion and his friends were all those whom they had thought dead. There was Runewit the centaur, and Jewel the unicorn, and the good boar, and the good bear, and Farsight the eagle, and the dear dogs and the horses, and Poggin the dwarf. Further in and higher up cried Runewit, and thundered away in a gallop to the west. Okay, so hopefully from reading this scene, you can already recognise some parallels to the Catholic vision for the Day of Judgment. In this scene, Aslan represents Christ, going through the door represents entryway into heaven, while going into Aslan's shadow represents damnation. Before we explore this scene further, I want to quickly mention that Catholic teaching actually speaks about two judgments that are to come. The particular judgment which happens at the moment of our individual death, and the final judgment, which takes place at the end of time at the second coming of Christ. For the purposes of this episode, I won't really be distinguishing between the two judgments, mainly because it won't be relevant for what we'll be discussing. And also, even in this Narnia scene, C.S. Lewis actually kind of conflates the two judgments into one, which is technically possible because in eternity, the separation of time is not really a thing. Anyway, if you did want to learn more about the difference between the two judgments, I will leave a link to a nice video from Father Mike Schmitz explaining them. Okay, so now to the scene with the animals. The first detail I want to point out is one that many today will find hard to swallow. The notion that Catholics do not believe in the idea of universalism. Universalism? What's that? Universalism, yeah, universalism, simply put, is the idea that in the end, everyone will get saved and everyone will go to heaven. And even the most evil people will somehow eventually see the light and hell will eventually be empty. Because when even the most wretched sinner sees the face of God, they won't be able to help but choose him. Sound familiar? It's a very popular idea today and often goes side to side with the idea that oh, all religions and paths are really the same and all eventually lead to God. To nip this confusion in the bud, C.S. Lewis, the paragon of Christian orthodoxy and theology, gives us this door image from Narnia, where it is very clear that not all the creatures get saved, and some indeed do disappear into the shadow of Aslan, a.k.a. the symbol of hell. At this point, you may be wondering, why don't Catholics believe in universalism? After all, wouldn't a loving God wish salvation upon all his children? The answer is, of course, yes. But he also wishes that we choose to love him, rather than be fated to love him. The fact that God leaves our free will intact is very important, because if you do the logic, if everyone has to get saved in the end, then at some point in time, God has to also take away our free will. 
in order to achieve that fated outcome. And this is something God will never do because God is love. And love must always embrace choice. Love necessitates free will. After all, if a man forces his partner to marry him, the woman wouldn't really be loving him, would she? But even so, what person in their right mind would want to not choose God? What Narnian creature would not want to enter the door and instead swerve away into Aslan's shadow? Well, this passage gives us a clue. Remember that detail that when the animals approached Aslan, some saw his face and hated it and swerved into his shadow while others gazed at his face and loved it and went through the door? In the same way that God doesn't force anyone into heaven, he also doesn't sentence anyone into hell. If anyone ends up in hell, they are there by their own choice. People choose hell because in this lifetime, they have grown to be disgusted and repulsed by the idea of heaven. How? Well, in the section of the Catechism which talks about judgment, a profound quote from St. John of the Cross is offered, where he says, In the evening of our lives, we shall be judged on our love alone. I'll repeat that. In the evening of our lives, we shall be judged on our love alone. What St. John is saying is something like this. The only thing that will carry over from this life to the next is love. We cannot take anything else with us, for nothing that has not been blessed, created or redeemed by love will make it through the door per se. After all, we Christians profess that God is love, and if this is true, then by definition, heaven is love. Heaven is relationship. For heaven is where God is, and heaven is the full actualization of God's love for all eternity. All who are in heaven are those who are living in this right relationship with God, with neighbor, and with ourselves. Those who don't choose heaven then are those who live a life that is anti-love, anti-relationship. When love and truth is offered to such people, even in this lifetime, they are simply repulsed by it. Think of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Because of his hardness of heart, he was unwilling to receive his father's love, unable to forgive his younger brother for his sins, and most importantly, was repulsed by the father's mercy towards the same younger brother. Even when the father comes out to plead with the older brother to come inside to the light, he seemingly chooses to remain out in the dark. See, even in this one parable, it is obvious that it is not the father who sentences the older brother into the dark. Rather, it was the older brother who was repulsed by the love shown inside the banquet. Alongside showcasing the father's heart, this parable gives us a dire warning of what happens to one who is closed off to divine love. For Christian love is not about warm and fuzzy feelings for one another. Rather, it is a particular quality of love, the type exemplified by Jesus himself. Some of the unique characteristics of God's love are mercy, self-gift, a love centered on the good of the other. It embraces the poor and the marginalized. It is a love that is ready to forgive and to receive forgiveness. 
It is a love that extends even to our enemies. It is a love that sees every suffering and trial as an opportunity to expand our capacity to love and to be loved. And it is a love that seeks and celebrates the truth. But the older brother in the parable wanted none of these, and so, rather than seeing the tender face of his father and loving it, he was disgusted by it and wouldn't enter the light. Now, to be fair, we don't actually know how the parable ends, and we hope that in time the older brother's heart expands and he does come inside. In the meantime, though, the parable offers us a window into the real possibility of how we, like those animals in Narnia, can be disgusted by what God represents. For we are actually rejecting God's love when we refuse to forgive another person. We are rejecting God's love when we condemn another, judging them unworthy of mercy. We are rejecting God when we choose to believe the lie which says that we are more righteous than others and we deserve salvation and others don't. Remember, God is truth himself and no lie, no matter how sweet and popular it sounds here on earth, will ever make it into heaven. This image of the older brother turning away from the light actually opens up for us another metaphor to explain why some animals in Narnia are repulsed by the face of Aslan while others love it. And it is this. Say you're out for a walk at night and your eyes have become accustomed to the dark. Think of what happens when someone suddenly shines a torch in your face. What do you do? You cover your eyes and instinctively turn away back into the dark. In that instant, you turn away even without intending to. You could say that if a person has become accustomed to living their entire life in the dark, why would they suddenly be ready to receive the light when they see it? The light would be painful, overwhelming, repulsive, like Aslan's face to those who had not lived according to his ways. This simple image busts the myth that, oh, when a repentant sinner sees God, they'll just suddenly convert and repent. No. When an unrepentant sinner sees the face of God, they will instinctively turn away from the light. And the darkness which they've chosen to embrace during their lifetime will be the only reality they know. You know, another reason many object to the idea of a final judgment is precisely because our conscience tells us that we are in fact guilty. Deep inside, many of us know that we are not living a life in accordance with God's love. And so, many prefer to not think about death and judgment at all. But we must never suppress a guilty conscience by wishing away the judgment that is to come, because we only fear judgment if we are guilty. If an innocent man walking down the street suddenly encounters a policeman, he wouldn't even bat an eyelid. He might even say hi to the policeman. But a guilty person in the same position would start sweating profusely and become terrified and wish the policeman away. Fair enough, because he knows that he has a stolen watch in his pocket. So it is with our conscience. If we find ourselves scandalized by the doctrine of judgment, let's first examine our conscience and bring that to prayer. It might also be helpful to consider a different perspective on God's judgment, where judgment actually becomes something desirable. Far from meaning vengeance or punishment, we know that justice in the Bible refers to the right ordering of things, or the reordering of things that have once become disordered. 
If a person has been grievously wronged in this lifetime or has suffered great injustices like abuse and persecution, etc., we actually want God's justice to break forth and indeed we cry out for it. Think of all those atrocities that have been committed in the world against the innocent. Think of the recent atrocities in the Ukraine, shellings of hospitals, maternity wards, kindergartens and the slaughtering of innocent civilians. Think of those heart-wrenching school shootings of children in the United States. Doesn't something in us cry out for justice? That true justice be eventually given to those morally culpable? Well, the good news is it will be because God's final justice will eventually break forth and his final judgment will be more fair and more restorative than anything we can possibly imagine. Seen in this light, when we're standing on the side of the oppressed, God's justice is actually a very good thing. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. There is one more detail I want to highlight about this Narnian door scene that may not be as obvious without reading all seven books. It's about the explicit role of Aslan as judge. In the scene, it sort of looks like Aslan is just a sort of a passive judge, just standing by the door waiting to pass sentence. But in actual fact, the opposite has been true. Despite the fact that some of the Narnian creatures were disgusted by his face, Aslan had previously done everything he possibly could to reach out to these fallen creatures. His mercy had been extended to them time and time again, not just to the creatures like the dwarves and the calamines, but also to the heroes like Edmund and Susan. This merciful initiative of Aslan is absolutely crucial in understanding the role of Christ as judge. While we know that Jesus does in the end sit on the throne of judgment at the moment of our death, he doesn't sit as the type of judge we typically think of in a court of law. Rather, we have a judge who will do literally everything that's possible to make a way for us. I would even suggest that not only is Jesus a merciful judge, he also sends us guilty folk, his best defense lawyer, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to plead on behalf of us. Now this is incredibly reassuring for us sinners, knowing that the cosmic judge is incredibly biased towards us and has sacrificed everything to set us free. But How will we respond to this mercy through the life we are living? Big topic and big questions, but I hope you found today's exploration on judgment at least stirring in some way. As hinted at earlier, this is a big topic and we are only able to explore judgment as much as C.S. Lewis's image allows us. And it is in the end just a metaphor and not a perfect image. But hopefully it can still shed some light on the topic. As a practical pilgrim reflection, I want to encourage you to reflect on the only thing that matters at the seat of judgment, love. Remember that quote from St. John of the Cross, that at the evening of our lives, the only thing we shall be judged upon is love? Meditate on that. You could ask questions like, 
If heaven is love, to what extent am I living heaven now? How might the many sufferings and trials today be stretching me to grow in love, to grow in my capacity to receive love? And just as importantly, where might I have been closed off to love? Who might I have closed off love to? And how might Christ's example inspire and strengthen me to love these people in the same way? All worthwhile questions, and certainly ones I, your unworthy host, am not exempt from. So pray for me too, and pray for one another, dear pilgrims. Pray that we may all one day see each other in heaven, in the new Narnia, where our epic pilgrimage on earth finally concludes. But until that fateful day, journey forth, take care, and God bless.